Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Framework Leadership, a podcast about principles and ideas that you can use today to take your leadership to the next level. We're exclusively a part of the SEU Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ken Engel, president of Southeastern University. And I'm your co-host, Michael Steiner, SEU Chief of Staff. Well, hey, I'm excited to introduce our guest for today's show, Lester Munson. Lester is a principal in the international practice at BGR Group, a leading government relations firm in Washington, D.C. And Lester joined BGR Group in 2015 after a 26-year career on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch. He was most recently staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he led policy oversight, legislative and communications efforts for the staff, for a staff of 25, and at least negotiated committee priorities with the White House, the State Department, and also the congressional leadership. Lester, it's great to have you on our show today. Thanks, Kent. Great to be with you. You know, I'm looking forward to our, our conversation about your experience, uh, especially with security, foreign policy, uh, leadership, your work in leading BGR's foreign assistance practice has you and your team providing, wow, some some great advisory and government relations services to companies and advocacy groups and non-governmental organizations in the international aid policy area. Tell us uh, a little bit about your passion behind this business and, and really what drove you to pursue this field in your life. Uh, Kent, what a great question. So um, when I was 19 years old, uh, I was a college student. I applied to be an intern with my congressman, who happened to be a guy named Henry Hyde, Mm. a Republican from Illinois. Uh, He was uh, on the Iran-Contra committee in 1987, and that was the the summer I interned for him. Uh, So it was June, July, and August of 1987, he was on the Iran-Contra committee, which meant he was on TV uh, two or three or four times a week. I was the only intern in the office. He kind of became this mini-celebrity, uh, and and I just kind of got caught up in the national security space, the Congress space. I love public policy. I love kind of being in the middle of the action, and uh, once, once you catch that virus, you never get rid of it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, something I'm super curious about as you in kind of and I'll, I'll set the context as kind of the macro question on this so um, I think one of the big things that leaders often struggle with is prioritizing so if you've got five different things you have to accomplish you can only get three of them done whether for time resources and stuff how do you pick those things so that's that's an issue that a lot of leaders deal with but you you deal with that on a macroeconomic level you know doing advice for the White House and for Congress and even foreign policy you're working with countries where they've only got enough aid for two of the ten priorities all ten of them can help their countries help their people how do you advise um, when how do you advise prioritizing how do you help people understand understand what are the best things to be going for? You know, that's a great question. I I think, you know, you want to keep the main thing, the main thing. The most uh, interesting time I had to wrestle with that was probably when I was the staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Mm -hmm. Committee, where Congress plays this constitutional role in overseeing what the administration, whatever the administration happens to be, their conduct of foreign affairs. Uh, Congress gets to approve nominations, it gets Mm -hmm. to approve treaties, it has to authorize all the funding. But most importantly for Congress, interestingly, is not necessarily those functions. It's just kind of reminding Congress that it needs to do that job. Mm. It can't just let the president uh, kind of take control 
of the U.S. government apparatus. Congress has a designated role to play. A lot of times it's kind of willing to just let the president make the decisions and take all the blame for the mistakes. But then the system doesn't work. Congress needs help reminding itself that it has a very important job to do. And so I often found that the biggest challenge in that job uh, was was kind of not that you can guide them, but kind of yeah. pushing uh, or, or gently encouraging senators to go in the right direction, step up to the plate, and, and be the voice of the people in this really important area that our, that our government is supposed to function in. And they, they had a big role in that, and sometimes you just kind of had to remind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why, why, why do you think that they forget that? I mean, what's, what's going on there? How come they, they sometimes are hesitant to step up to the plate on that? It's a, it's a great question. There's, uh, I think a lot of times politicians don't, don't want to walk into the spotlight and be blamed for recommending a specific course of action. They'd rather kind of stand off to the side and say, hey, that guy or that gal just did the wrong thing, and I'm against the wrong thing, instead of stepping up themselves and offering a constructive alternative. But that's really what our system depends on. Right. In checks and balances, it's not enough just to say the other person is wrong. You kind of have to offer, you have to offer your own approach to the problem. And, and when we get both sides or all sides offering constructive solutions, we can usually find a pretty good one. Not always, frankly, because uh, people are very flawed. But usually, the more, the more ideas you have in the arena, the more likely you are to find a good response to a problem. Uh, you've spent, you know, so many years now on on Capitol Hill and and working in foreign policy. Uh, what do you think right now is the biggest challenge the United States is facing as it relates to foreign policy and 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 the issues of security? I think the biggest challenge is the rise of China. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people call this the second Cold War. It's really a very different situation than what we had in the 20th century with, uh, you know, the communist bloc and the Soviet Union. In that case, we didn't really have an economic competitor. Now with China, we've got both an alternative form of government, an authoritarian uh, way of ruling a country where it's just a small group of people. In this case, the elite of the Chinese Communist Party get to make all the decisions in China. Uh, but they're also very successful economically, and they kind of right. offer a model of state-driven capitalism that is anathema to a lot of our our values related to human rights, democracy, transparency, the right of individuals over the rights, over the obligations of the government, which is something we hold sacred in our country. That is the opposite of where China is coming from. It presents a, a, a kind of a challenge across the board, because in some cases, we're going to want to collaborate with China. We want to encourage capitalism in China. We just don't want to encourage state-driven capitalism there. And we also don't want to end up in a conflict, a military conflict through all of this. So we do need to kind of infuse a little bit of detente into the situation, mm-hmm. some economic some positive economic competition. We also need to be pretty hard-eyed about the the goals of the Chinese government, both in terms of geopolitics, you know, what it wants with Hong Kong, Taiwan, Mm. uh, the South China Sea, Tibet, things like that, and also what it's trying to do in the economies of developing countries. We need to be forceful advocates for individual rights, for capitalism, for democracy in the developing world, we have to be more persuasive than China. It's a it's a pretty big challenge. Let me ask you this: We have a lot of students that you know look at the two different models. That obviously we we work with college students, and so there's a big push about the benefits of socialism and different things like that. If you could just walk through high level, not not a lecture or anything like that, but what are the 
key differences between the way our, our economy and our government works here in the United States versus how China works and why those differences matter. Um, I think I think one of the most important principles for and believe and I have two children who are in college. I totally understand what you're saying. I think it's important that we not just hand off we the older generations not just hand off to the younger generation and say hey it's you're in charge now. I think we're obliged to teach them the lessons we learned. They may not agree with the outcomes of our of our lessons, but we should at least be exposing them to the challenges we faced and the reason our generations made certain decisions. And I think a key one is transparency and accountability. In a socialist or a communist system, there's no alternative voice to what mm -hmm. the government says. The people are not allowed to speak up and say, hey, I don't like that. I think we should do it a different way. In our country, as, as, as flawed as we are, we have plenty of problems, there's no doubt. But I do think our system is the best one because a, a single person can stand up and say, I don't like that. I think we should do it a right. different way. And if yes, they're able each. to persuade others to go along with them, then you can have a real political movement. That is an incredibly valuable thing. Yeah. You, you've been a commentator on, on Fox News and other networks and have spoken about uh, so many different topics. But as division and political tensions have affected our country, especially over the last uh, couple of years, what, um, what silver linings, though, have you personally discovered uh, through, through what's going on today? Well, uh, uh, that's a tough question. Um, I, think, I think things are pretty divisive right now. In a lot of you know the events of January sixth, uh, with the insurrection at the Capitol, mm -hmm. really uh, were very concerning for any of us who had ever worked there or visited there or hold that place as as really almost sacred ground. Right. Uh, that that was pretty tough to watch, and I think there should be consequences for what happened there. That's that's a tough political question right now. People are kind of going to different corners. I don't think that's very good. At the same time, you know, there are issues that we do have common ground on. I think people want to respond in a positive way to the coronavirus situation. We may disagree on masks. Unfortunately, we're disagreeing on vaccines right now. I think we need to do a better job of talking to each other. We do have common ground on dealing with the rise of China. Both the left and the right agree this is a challenge. They have kind of different solutions in some mm -hmm. cases, but there's a pretty constructive dialogue going on in Congress right now. So even while it is pretty divisive, and, and by the way, our political history has almost always been divisive. Sure. We have been at right. each other's throats in public, calling each other names for a long time. It's not our best side, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, it can it can get a little ugly, but this is this is not new. It may be a little bit worse now than it was a few years ago, but it's not new. Mm. At the end of the day, we have a system that's designed to make sure no one faction takes over and gets to tell everyone else what to do. Mm. We, have, we have a system of checks and balances, of divided uh, government, three different branches. That's, that's a good system for letting people sort things out in public talking to each other rather than by some other means, which is unfortunately what happens in other countries. Do you think, but let me ask you this, do you think that system could be in jeopardy right now with things that are happening in our nation? You know, you, you do have full control under democratic control and, and they have the ability, you know, for example, you, you in the filibuster and they could pretty much kind of take over uh, on, on getting things through. Do you, do you have a sense that that could be somewhat in jeopardy at all right now? I do. I, I have concerns about what happened on January 6th. I have concerns that the Democrats are going to go too far in trying to advance their agenda and break down some of these 
well-established breaks on government mechanisms. I do take heart in the fact that not all Democrats are willing to eliminate the filibuster. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, the senator from West Virginia and the senator from Arizona who are against it. There are others, too. They're a little afraid to speak up. But the fact that Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema are kind of willing to say it in public gives gives a lot of relief to other Democrats. I I don't think there's a huge uh, base of support in that party, at least in the Senate, to change the filibuster rule. And that's really the only place it matters. The House, no matter who controls the House, they always think the Senate should get rid of the filibuster. Right, right. (laughs) It's it's the way our system is built, right? The House wants, hey, we just passed something, you guys should pass it. And the Senate will say, yeah, our system doesn't work the way yours does. And the House will say, you should change your system. And the Senate will say, no, we're not going to do that. That's, That's not a bad conversation for our country to have. I think we should, I think we need to while we're trying to deal with some of these new problems that we have, whether it's inequality, whether it's people getting left behind because of global trade, whether it's issues of race or other groups, that we don't forget that we have these institutions that have served us well mm-hmm. over time, that have led us to make changes that were necessary, but and made sure we didn't go too far. Mm-hmm. The filibuster is one of those. It's one of many. We need to kind of hold on to those institutional assets we have as a country and, and defend them fiercely. And I and so I respect those who do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't get a lot of credit. Senator McConnell, uh, who's the, Demo- the Republican leader, uh, in the Senate ha- is willing to say risky things to support what he sees as the ins- you know these these important yep. bulwarks in the Senate and and God bless him for doing it. Uh, I think that's a tough message. It's not very popular. He's saying it. Uh, more people need to be talking like that. Yeah, sure. you know, yeah. One thing you said a little bit a little bit ago is is none of these problems are new. These are all things we've worked through and, right. and issues. And especially, you know, when you talk about the issues of equality, I mean, we're on kind of wave number three as a country trying to address this issue, this this you know problem. And it all kind of starts the same. You know, you see this this rise of a, of an issue, a political movement starts. You see massive division, massive kind of conflict on that side of it. Lester, in your opinion, what's that third turn? You know, we've gone through the wave three times and each time we advance light years and a lot of things get fixed. What's the what's the third turn that we need to do right now on some of these issues to kind of move past the the division into into a solution? So, you know, one of the most amazing facts of the 2020 election is that uh, President Trump got a higher percentage of the vote among black Americans and Hispanic Americans than any recent Republican candidate. It's it's uh, something that the chattering classes in Washington don't like to talk about. They mm. can't really explain it. But there's no doubt that uh, I think if you if you get past some of the the tough rhetoric on both on both sides, frankly, and you get to issues where uh, this is about people's lives. It's about the impact of, um, uh, you know, fentanyl and communities. It's right. about the impact of global trade and the impact it can have on our old manufacturing base, on uh, the ability of families to take care of their children and make sure they're well-educated in a safe environment, or at least a relatively safe environment. Those things unite all of us, yeah. no matter what we look like, no matter where we came from, no matter what we think of as our kind of group history. Those are the things we all deal with today. And that's properly, I think, the thing that p- politics should be focused on in this country. You're going to get people on both sides who talk about 
hey, because this happened in the past, therefore this, or because this other thing didn't happen in the past, we should do this other thing. Really what we're talking about is how to help people now, mm-hmm. how to help Americans live their lives with freedom, with some dignity, and with you know, institutions they can rely on. Instead of us, instead of government or others pulling the rug out from under them, let's help build schools that will educate kids on on the basics so that they know history and they know math. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you're going to need math to compete in the 21st century. Right. There's no doubt. And so uh, we need to, I think we need to be totally honest about our history, but we also really need to focus on giving kids the skills they need to compete in the global marketplace. I trust Americans to win that race every single time, mm-hmm. uh, but we, we're going to have to do our job and do right by the, this generation. Yeah. As a, as a faculty member at John Hopkins uh, University, you, you have the opportunity to speak to younger individuals about their goals and their aspirations. What are some of the practices that you wish maybe you had even learned at an earlier age, that if they can get a hold of it now, wow, this is going to make an all uh, a huge impact down the road here. Uh, go to office hours with your professors. <laughs> I really should have done that when I was in college. Uh, I think uh, and I'm going through this with, with, you know, my kids are in college. Uh, I see these, granted, they're graduate students, but the students who speak up, who kind of make themselves known to the professor, who say, hey, I, you know, I've done the reading. Here's my thoughts. By the way, I have some concerns about this. Why didn't we look at this instead of that? I respect those students, mm. the ones who are willing to kind of be involved in the conversation. It's the, you can be a perfectly good student and not be directly involved, but the professor's not going to know that. So Mm. I would say to the young people out there today, make sure your, your professor knows who you are, engage that person in conversation, be part of the dialogue of the class and the, and the larger intellectual life of your college or university. That's so important. And you, you have value to add. You may, you might be wrong about some issues. That's okay. Stand up, be counted, put yourself in that position where you have to defend your views because you're going to be doing that a lot mm-hmm. later on in life and you might as well start now. Yeah. yeah. And I think that speaks a lot to, you know, the value of having a mentor. You know, even if even if you're not necessarily a student that's in college, there's you don't grow in a vacuum. You don't achieve the goals that you have in your life, you know, education in a vacuum. And so at college, the great thing is that we have built-in mentorship. We have this office hours where you can go in and, and kind of echo, you know, um, off of somebody that's that's older than you. But I think a lot of students need to understand, and I think you're right, even on a college campus, they don't take advantage of that, of that very great resource that we have for them. Um, and so that's that's a huge resource. In your opinion, what's what's maybe some other resources that, that young people can lean in to, to get advancement in their career? Maybe book or, or different things like that that you've, that you've experienced in your leadership? Uh, boy, such a great question. I think, you know, extend that mentorship across, not just in college, but into your job search, into your the early part of your career. Make friends with people who are older than you, who have, mm-hmm. who have walked a path similar to yours. They're never going to walk the exact same path, but, but know what the older folks have seen, what, what the challenges that, that they've overcome or not overcome. And you can, you can learn so much just by, you know, having lunch with someone every couple of months and kind of checking in on what you've seen, what they've seen. I st- I'm 53. I still have mentors I go check in with who are, you know, either at the end of their careers or they're already retired just because I feel like I still have so much to learn. It's, you should be a sponge with the people around you. Also, 
never, you know, always try to find a way to say yes when people ask to engage with you. Mm. If someone sends you an email, respond. If someone calls you, call them back. If someone asks to meet for coffee, go meet them. You don't have to agree with them. You don't even have to like them. Uh, but, but go meet with them and build, build your network, be involved in the society that you're in and play a role, volunteer to give back to the institutions that have benefited you. If you're in college, you're going to be out soon and with a job, be one of the young alumni who are still involved with the, with the student body and be a mentor to people younger than you. Um, and I'm not, I don't have like kind of stars in my eyes over to pay it forward or anything like that, but this is, this is what right. humans do, right? Yeah. In a society, get, you know, I mean, we're kind of talking to each other through, uh, through Skype here, but like get away from your computer, go to the event where people are, talk to them, learn from them, be involved. Don't just sit at your computer all day looking looking at, at visuals of people. Be present in the things that are happening. It's so important. Yeah, that's powerful, uh, powerful wisdom and, and grateful for your, your advice. One final question before we close our conversation and move into a quick fire round. Uh, you, uh, you have a weekly podcast called Fault Lines, which specifically, of course, discusses uh, foreign policy and national security issues with, with various experts. Tell us about one of your favorite discussions and how it elevated political conversation. Boy, it's uh, we uh, <laughs> we've done we've done eighty eight or eighty nine of them now. There've been a lot of conversations, and it does seem like every in almost every podcast we get back to the Iran nuclear deal from twenty fifteen, okay. which of course is now thankfully back in the news and uh, in a way so that we can keep talking about it. We're uh, my friends and I on the podcast. We all worked together in the Senate uh, a few years ago. The biggest thing we worked on was oversight of the Iran nuclear deal. We keep coming back to that issue. We still haven't really resolved any of the fundamental differences mm. between those those of us, mostly Democrats, who think, hey, it's better to engage with Iran and try to hold their feet to the fire on a deal with Republicans who keep saying, including me, who keep saying, hey, that deal just wasn't good enough and doesn't advance our interests. We've debated this about 50 times, mm. and I don't think we've really quite found the common ground yet, which is instructive and a little bit humbling about, hey, sometimes you're just not going to agree on things, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Well, as we move into our fire round, I, I want to ask you uh, uh, just a couple of questions surrounding kind of everything we've discussed already, and 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 just kind of give your 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 gut answer here. We want to grab a few practical and, and applicable pieces of advice from your uh, experience for our listeners. So uh, let's uh, let's begin. Michael, why don't you ask the first question? And so this first one is a great dovetail off of the Iran nuclear deal, which you guys have been talking about. In your opinion, what is the key to having constructive conversations? Uh, that you're willing to sit down and talk about them and even when you disagree, come back and talk about them again. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's these things do usually evolve over time. And the more you talk about them, the more likely you are to find common ground. You can kind of build on something there. By the way, you don't always have to agree. It's okay to have yeah, two right. different points of view. Yeah. And let's let, you know, if it, if it goes to a vote of the American people in some grander sense, that's exactly what this whole system is for. But yeah. definitely just keep talking to each other. A quick question: How do you how do you make decisions effectively? Uh, I think you make them uh, with consideration, but you don't delay. Mm, I think okay. a decision delayed is a is a decision not made. And I think, especially if you're in a situation where you know there's just 50 decisions you have to make a day, like my brother who owns a restaurant has to make probably 500 decisions a day. He's got to he's got to make a decision and then be a little bit like a goldfish 
forget about his mistakes, try to move on and make the good decision on the next one. It's like being a basketball player. You missed the last shot. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take the next shot. Yeah. Uh, you got You got to just kind of keep rolling through these things. The only, the only way out is through, mm-hmm. as they say. Oh, that's, that's good. That's so good. Last question for you. In your career, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Return the call. Mm. Yeah. The best piece of advice I got was from uh, a mentor, a mentor of mine who was in a very senior position as a staffer in Congress, very extremely senior, arguably the most important staffer in the House. And he said to me at one point, he said, Les, you know, no matter what you're doing, just make sure you respond to people. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, that's what's going to build those relationships. It's going to so you know what's going on. They know what's going on with you. You're an honest arbiter. Respond to people. You don't have to tell them yes. Sometimes you're going to tell them no, but at least respond. Yeah. Most important, most important skill in Washington. Great wisdom, great advice. Lester, I want to thank you for joining us today on Framework Leadership Podcast. I'm grateful for your insight that you have provided uh, uh, all of our listeners, that's for sure. And if you uh, want to stay up to date with Lester, you can follow him on Twitter, at Lester Munson. And uh, for more leadership content, you can check us out on Instagram, Kent underscore Ingle, or Twitter, at Kent Ingle. Also, if you're watching us on YouTube, now is a great time for you to hit that like button, hit subscribe button, so that you can continue to get amazing leadership content to grow your uh, career and and life on that side. So you can also visit our website, kentingle.com. And uh, thank you all for listening to Framework Leadership today. Thanks again, Lester. Thanks, guys. This was great.